Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 25, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the just-released book, The God Who Fights For You. Uh, It's out on Amazon and elsewhere um, just for a week now. So if you haven't checked it out, please do. I'm also uh, author of the book from last year, Spiritual Grit, and there's two devotions tied to that, by the way, one for adults and one for teenagers. So uh, they, they, they're fantastic companions to, to Spiritual Grit. Spiritual Grit is full of practical ways to live into a more gritty life with Jesus, but the devotions... Wow, they go even deeper. They give you um, more to think about, more to chew on, and more to try out and experiment in your everyday life. So check those out. I'm also authored The Jesus-Centered Life, on which this podcast got its uh, got its start out of that book, um, which essentially is an, an exploration of what does it look like to live our lives uh, centered around Jesus all the time. It's kind of uh, in a way, if you're familiar with the classic book, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, it's an updated um, version of that uh, uh, that is drawn from my own two decades of experimenting with what this looks like in life, to to live your life where you're not um, compartmentalizing your relationship with Jesus. Actually, it spreads out into every room in your house so to speak. So that's the Jesus-centered life, and that's really the mission of this podcast. What does it look like to come to know the heart of Jesus in such a way that his influence spreads into every little nook and cranny of our life? I'm also the editor of the Jesus-centered Bible, another expression of how can we add some special features to a Bible that would help you as you read to always be thinking about and chewing on the role of Jesus in whatever it is you're reading. So that's the Jesus-centered Bible. So we do a lot of Jesus-y things around here uh, because we're hoping that the more you chew into these kinds of resources, the more likely you are to discover one day, hey, my life revolves completely around Jesus. When that happens, your life changes, and so do all the lives of the people around you. So today is our fifth episode and in this new summer series that we're calling Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions. So this will take us uh, deep into the summer by the time we're done with this, because we're exploring what I call nine essential questions that all human beings have. For those of you who love your copy of your Jesus-centered Bible, you'll notice that in the Gospels we have these little boxes that I wrote called Essential Questions Boxes, and I had gone on this little journey to discover the questions all human beings have. What are the foundational questions of life? And I was able to condense them down into kind of these nine broad questions that encompass the the deeper things that we wonder about in our life. So uh, uh, we're going to move through all nine. We've done four today. The fifth one is, is this all there is? Is this all there is? 
it's uh, behind this question is sort of what I what I might call the the cynicism of materialists. A, a materialist is a person who believes that there's really nothing outside of our five senses reality. Uh, it's a way of sort of qualifying reality as only those things that we can experience through our five senses. So in the beginning, um, Socrates paved the way for this belief system, so this goes way back. It's not a recent thing. Socrates is sort of the father of materialism, but it was later popularized and propagated by Darwin and Marx and Freud um, in in the last century, and it's a way of seeing life that tries to imagine if you negate anything beyond our physical reality, then how do you explain everything about our life? And it has behind it this idea that in the end, our so-called mystical experiences and our spiritual bent that we, we are born with can really be explained materially uh, by, uh, by physical means, not spiritual means. Marx, for example, said this, Christianity cannot be reconciled with reason, as embodied in in the Enlightenment sciences, because secular and spiritual reason contradict each other. So that's the basic premise of materialism. And I thought it'd be interesting that there's a uh, a little YouTube channel called Sixty Second Philosophy, and uh, I, I thought it was fascinating. This guy explained materialism in sixty seconds. So I thought it'd be good to listen to a thinking person describe what materialism is in 60 seconds. So let's listen to this. Materialism is the view that nothing but physical matter exists. To a materialist, there's no such thing as the supernatural, and nothing can be that is not comprised of physical components. Materialism is a metaphysical stance in that it denies metaphysics altogether, as there can be nothing beyond physics when the physical is all that there is. This position obviously denies the existence of any god or of a soul. This position claims that there can be no immaterial component to the mind as well. Materialism is almost always tied to atheism, but materialists can be of all sorts when it comes to epistemology, ethics, etc. Despite its popularity these days, this stance is not new. It has taken on a new form since the advent of modern science, however. Now, people are confident that science will eventually find a materialistic explanation to everything. So there you have it, a smart guy explaining materialism in 60 seconds. And the upshot of it is, you know, whatever you see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, that's pretty much it. Um, Anything beyond that really isn't reality. Any thoughts of heaven and hell are really, I mean, they're, they're just sort of uncourageous wish fulfillments, meaning um, it's, it's a primitive thing, materialists would say, to, for when human beings talk about heaven and hell because they're simply primitive people trying to describe uh, this, this longing they have for transcendence, something that's beyond their physical being. And these are people that just lack the courage to accept the world as it as it really is, the world as we know it. So how does this spill into our normal everyday life? Well, materialists answer the question, is this all there is, by saying, yep, <laughs> this is it. And so when you hear about uh, 
a famous uh, atheist like Richard Dawkins on his deathbed, many people thought um, that perhaps on his deathbed, because the, these huge questions of life and death now are not rhetorical, they're real, he's heading into this dark unknown, many people thought that he might start to question some of his passionate beliefs, but he doggedly hung on to this idea that there's really nothing beyond this, and so the whatever experience you have as a human being ends with your, your death. So uh, the way that this, I think, spills into our normal everyday life is into things like um, as fundamental as the American dream, uh, as an example. So uh, constitutionally, we have this sense as Americans that our greatest hope in life is the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's where the American dream emerged from. These three things, the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we say are kind of tacitly that these are the highest pursuits of human beings. In a way, you could say this materialistic perspective is embedded in in the American dream. Here's what I mean. Uh, The pursuit of life, let's take that one. Well, what if there's something more powerful and more defining and more permanent and even more beautiful than our physical life? What if there is a greater reality beyond the physical reality we've experienced now? What if there's a life that we were meant to live that really is eternal, and, and, uh, it, and the life we live now is a, is a faint shadow of that life? So if that were all true, the pursuit of life in the way that we typically define that would also be a poor shadow of the pursuit of life, capital L, the life we find with Jesus. Well, let's take the second one, the pursuit of liberty. Well, what if we can experience a deeper freedom than our physical freedom when we talk about liberty? Uh, For example, uh, there are many stories of—I just saw a story like this on 60 Minutes not too long ago—of people who are imprisoned for life for their crimes, but while they're in prison have found uh, faith in Christ— in a, rela- in a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus that causes them to give as mentors and, and uh, leaders for those who are in prison already, or even scholars or writers, while they're in prison, they have no hope of their physical freedom in their lifetime, but they've experienced a kind of spiritual freedom that gives great meaning to their life. So are we saying then that those who have had their physical freedom taken away that, that there is nothing higher than that. And we have to say the, the example of those prisoners who have found great life in the midst of their imprisonment um, contradicts that. And let's take the last one, uh, the pursuit of happiness. So uh, this is sort of almost like low-hanging fruit. What if our pursuit of happiness really is more like trying to catch a firefly with your bare hand? Uh, that That... That uh, probably accurately describes uh, what the pursuit of happiness is like for most people. It's this shining thing in the night that we're all grasping for, but we it's really hard to capture. And sometimes when we capture it and open our hand, we discover we've killed the firefly, <laughs> that once we grab on to the happiness we've been seeking our whole life and finally have it, we realize it's dead on arrival, that it does nothing for us. I'll always remember um, listening to David Brooks 
the great New York Times columnist being interviewed um, by the Gospel Coalition um, about his recent, uh, recently released book, The Second Mountain. And he said something that was just fascinating to me. The interviewer is asking him about uh, all of the awards and fame and wealth that he's gained. And David Brooks told him the story of when his editor called him one day and told him, I can't remember which book it was, but it was the first book he had written that had risen to the level of number one New York Times bestseller. And his editor called him the day that David Brooks' book ascended to that number one status. And David Brooks hung up the phone and he said, it did nothing for me. It didn't move the needle at all. And those kinds of reactions are an indicator that this pursuit of these things that we think, we, the, the, our pursuit of the firefly in the dark, um, ends up often dead on arrival. In fact, David Brooks's book, The Second Mountain, is all about climbing a mountain of meaning in your life. The first mountain is the, our pursuit of the firefly. It, it's our pursuit of all the things we think will bring us happiness. The second mountain is the pursuit of something more real, deeper. So David Brooks has opened himself beyond materialism, to something more significant and life-changing and transformational and transcendent. So even embedded in our Constitution or even embedded in the American dream, we have these materialist beliefs that kind of filter in there, and they do impact our everyday life, the things that we strive for, the things that we're willing to sacrifice for, the things that we envy, the things that we, we cling to. All these things infect us. And they are essentially fruits or, uh, or the produce of a materialist perspective on life, um, of which Jesus is not an adherent, <laughs> obviously. So um, last week, uh, in our, uh, we have a, uh, about four or five times a year, we have a Friday night film night with our small group. So, and, and you've heard me before say that our small group is made up of teenagers and college students, so basically young adults about 20 of them, and we, ha- we like to have film nights four or five nights a week, and the, w- the way that I describe those film nights is we-, we choose films that aren't about Jesus, and then we talk about Jesus. If the film has too many obvious connections to Jesus or the gospel, it's not, it's not considered for film night. It has to be a film obviously not about Jesus, and then together we explore how we see Jesus in the film— or how we see the kingdom of God that Jesus revealed in the film. And uh, boy, I have to say, this last Friday night, we chose maybe one of the most challenging (laughs) films we've ever done in this context, and it came because one of the young people suggested it. I had not seen this film, so usually on film night, I've already seen the film, so I've had a chance to think about it already. And while I'm watching the film, that on film night, I am writing questions down. So after the film's over, we spend about an hour talking about the film, and I ask questions, and we interact a lot about these themes. And wow, I have to say, uh, some of the some of the the most uh, powerful, transforming truths I've ever heard come out of people's mouths have happened after uh, during our discussion on film night. Well, this last week. Because of his uh, recommendation, we watched Aquaman, uh, obviously a superhero movie. I'd never seen it because the star of that film, I saw him, I think, on Saturday Night Live or something, and I was just repelled by him. <laughs> so I didn't want to watch Aquaman. But 
But one of our young people said it, it, he thought it would be a really good film to watch on film night. So we watched Aquaman. It's a bad movie, by the way, I just have to say. Um, predictable in almost every way you can think of. Um, but remarkably, we had one of our best discussions ever about a bad movie. Um, I didn't frame it afterwards as a bad movie. It, it's, it's useless to do that. We just talked about uh, themes in the movie. And one of those themes was about evil. And I asked the question, is the way evil is depicted in this film, and in lots and lots of films, but in, is the way evil de- is depicted in this film, is it like the evil that Satan propagates or not? Is that evil remind you of Satan or not? And we had a fantastic discussion about that. Uh, the girl that first spoke up almost immediately said, yes, the evil in this film is a lot like Satan, and she, she made her case for why that is. And then a couple of people said, no, I don't think it is. And then at the end, I said, you know, uh, I think you've made a good case, those of you who made the case that, that the evil in this film is like Satan, but I think I land on the side of, no, it's not like Satan, because the evil that you see in this film, like many other films, is a lot of human destruction and violence. You, the evil is expressed through the wanton violence and taking of life in these films. And um, evil is, is uh, a betrayal, but it always ends in physical violence. And I said, I, I just don't believe Satan operates that way. He doesn't really care if our body is destroyed, if we die loving Jesus, then that's a defeat to him. He, he doesn't give a rip if our, our body is destroyed, because he also knows the truth, that we live an eternal life. He wants to separate us from our relationship with Jesus, and he wants to destroy our identity permanently. So our physical destruction doesn't mean that much to him. So I made the case that I don't think it the movie portrayed evil, satanic evil, really very well. It's not that it meant to, it's just it wasn't a good comparison. So then after film night was all over, it's about 11 o'clock at night, um, about half the group leaves, and about half the group stays, and among those, somebody started bringing up the whole concept of present evil and Satan in the world. And a few of the young people were, were sort of taken off guard and kind of shocked to think that evil didn't just exist in Bible stories, but exists right now. Like, they started getting freaked out when a part of it was like 11.30 or midnight, you know, and you start to think crazy thoughts deep into the night. Um, but they, they started f- scaring themselves. The thought that, that the demonic actually existed in, you know, one of them said, could even be in this room right now, and they were kind of all freaking out. And um, I'd already gone to bed. My wife decided to stay up and engage in this conversation, and I'm literally like in bed, and she comes in with her eyes wide open and this sense of urgency, and she said, you got to come out here, and these kids are getting afraid of all this. And, you know, you know one of them t- said to one, the other one that they had heard that uh, you, Rick, had been involved in some kind of exorcism before, and, you know, the whole conversation was ex- kind of exploding out of control. And my response was a very compassionate, I'm already in bed, I'm not coming out. <laughs> and I didn't. They they ended their conversation later on, and but my wife and I talked about this for a while afterwards. She told me some of the things that, that people were saying afterwards and why they were reacting the way they did, because it, it was simply freaking them out. And some of those uh, kids that were there that night had a hard time going to sleep. 
because fear was just gripping them, because the reality of a sort of a non-concrete world was setting in on them, and it was scary. It was almost like a car that's about to hit you, but you can you don't see it coming. That That's how they felt, like, oh my gosh, this terrible thing could be here, and there's nothing I can do about it because I can't see it. By the way, it is true that I have uh, prayed many times for people who um, either they believe that they have some demonic oppression in their life, or someone close to them does. And um, it sounds bizarre that I've done this many times, but uh, it really sort of grew out of the fruit of getting closer to Jesus and realizing how normally he saw this this sort of spiritual world swirling around us, and how unafraid and relaxed he was about it. He, he knew that he had authority, so what's there to worry about? <laughs> and that's how he treated these demonic um, influences, and that's how I learned to deal with that with people as well, in a kind of an unimpressed, authority-based way. So yes, it's true that I have done a good good amount of this in my life, um, but it's not something I talk about a lot, because um, it's not that big of a deal to me. It's as normal as anything else, in I think, in the Christian life. So, so the fact that my wife, though, referenced this history that I have praying for people who are experiencing this influence, um, that I think that freaked that freaked out some of those kids even more, <laughs> because they're like, "What? He's actually involved in this hidden world?" <laughs> now that freaks me out even more. So. It's almost like going into the, uh, if you're a fan of Stranger Things, it's almost about like going into the upside-down world. It's a world that no one in the show believes exists until you're dragged into it, and now you <laughs> you, you understand the reality that there's a parallel uh, reality going on in life, and in that parallel world, there's, there's a, a lot of evil stuff happening. So uh, the, my answer to all this, really, though, is that... Jesus was very clear about the non-material world, that it exists, and he treated it as a, almost uh, um, such a, uh, a normal, proven aspect of reality that it just came spilling out of him all the time. He, he simply acknowledged what was true, that there is a physical world and a spiritual world. Let me give you a few examples. From Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 17, uh, it says, And Jesus said to, to, to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is Jesus responding to Peter when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the first one to declare it publicly. And so Jesus says to him, You're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So Jesus here is essentially saying, the material did not reveal this to you, the Spirit revealed this to you, the thing that you can't see. The God you can't see is the one who revealed this to you. So Jesus is just treating this as, you know, matter of fact. Uh, in John chapter 1, uh, here's, here's how it reads in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received God, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So here he's talking about a birth that's not a birth from blood and flesh, um, or even the will of man, but a birth that comes from God, which is a spiritual birth. And that's essentially, uh, if you uh, progress on to John 3, 
where Jesus is encountering Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee who comes to him in the middle of the night with questions. And Jesus explains to him that your physical birth is just one birth. <laughs> Here's what he says, I assure you, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Wow, and you know, he couldn't be more blunt. There's another kind of life. It's a spiritual life. Um, so he's, he's here treating, again, matter-of-factly, that when we ask the question, is this all there is, he's saying, nope, <laughs> there's, there's a whole world that exists beyond this one. So I thought it'd be good for us to jump into three different examples of Jesus encountering people or teaching people in a way that um, undergirds and, and, and provides a foundation for this idea that this isn't all there is. So the first one's in Matthew chapter 5, and this is, of course, where the Beatitudes reside. Uh, he's on the side of a mountain, and he's starting off his public ministry by blasting away um, at accepted beliefs that really aren't true in the kingdom of God. So uh, it's fascinating, that again, that Jesus starts off his ministry by upending everything people thought they knew. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, we get this little blast of upending truth about the kingdom of God. Here's a little snippet. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. Here Jesus is kind of hitting the reset button on what our conventional expectations for success in life look like. So what is he comparing those conventional expectations to? He's comparing the material expectations we have to the immaterial expectations in the kingdom of God, this place that that we can't see but nevertheless live in. So here he's highlighting qualities and characteristics that really don't have much currency in our current world, but are priceless in the kingdom of heaven. So, for example, here on earth, the strongest people, the most talented people, the the most successful people, they hoard treasure. We all know what that treasure is. You just have to flip on the TV to see what treasure it is we're supposed to be pursuing in this life, and the, the most successful people have that treasure. But People who are poor in spirit, Jesus says, gain an eternal treasure in the kingdom of heaven. And he's treating that eternal treasure as bigger and better than the treasure we can physically try to grasp here. He's saying there's another world, and in that world there's a treasure that the people in this world who are marginalized actually get to have. He says things that the same is true also for people who mourn. Uh, people who are gentle, uh, people who are desperate for justice uh, and mercy, people who are pure of heart, people who are peacemakers and are persecuted for it. He's trying to highlight that all of these people who have no currency in the material world have great currency in the spiritual world. So uh, Jesus is saying over and over again in his Beatitudes, be happy if you're one of those people. Well, it doesn't make any sense for us to be happy if these things don't really exist. Jesus is saying this other world really exists, 
And these are real treasures that you can experience from that world. He's describing a real place, his hometown, really, which he calls the kingdom of heaven, where all of these characteristics are treated like the priceless treasures they really are. So in this world, the standards we've been taught to respect, you know, the, the goals and values that human beings most often seek reward in, are not really the values that God rewards. And he's essentially saying, this isn't all there is. And you can live in that reality right now. You don't have to live tied to the pursuits that you've been given in the material world, because again, they're like fireflies that even if you catch them, you'll kill them. In Matthew 8, we can flip over there to Matthew 8, 28 through 34. Here uh, we get into uh, what I was kind of teased a little bit before, Jesus' sort of natural relationship with, you might call them, spiritual principalities and powers. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to read one of those. Uh, this is in Matthew 8, starting in verse 28, going to verse 34. This is just one of his typical encounters with the demonic. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gadarenes, two men who were possessed by demons met him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through that area. They began screaming at him, Why are you interfering with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance, so the demons begged, If you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, Jesus commanded them. So the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. So uh, what I find fascinating about this is uh, we actually see the kind of conversation Jesus had with the de demonic, and there were witnesses to this. People saw him conversing with these demonic forces. So the people at that time weren't under any illusions that there was only a physical world, and it wasn't because they were primitive. It was because they saw it with their own eyes. They saw Jesus interacting with these demonic presences that screamed at him, why are you interfering with us? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? So they had a belief about Jesus. They've been uh, sold a lie, actually, about the heart of God by their father, the evil one, that said, hey, if, if you ever have an encounter with, with God or, or his son, he's going to destroy and torture you. That's what he's going to do. You should, you should attack or be afraid or uh, retreat, but because he, he has ill intent toward you. And in fact, Jesus just sits there and listens to him. They beg him to be cast out into the herd of pigs, and he says, okay, go ahead. <laughs> he's not really that interested in destroying them. He's just interested in them leaving the, the men alone that they had been harassing. So he just tells them, matter-of-factly, get out of them. It's a, just a typical encounter Jesus has, um, and he has it often with people who are oppressed in this way. So if the natural world is our only reality, then Jesus must be delusional, because he sure spends a lot of time and energy interacting with the supernatural. It, it happens all the time. So it's actually, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, Jesus it's a heresy to believe that this is all there is, because Jesus clearly told us and modeled to us by his words and actions that there's an unseen world that's just as uh, real as the seen world. So to say that uh, you're a materialist, either by belief or by function in your life, is to tacitly say that 
you don't believe in Jesus, <laughs> because Jesus made this a central reality of his everyday life. Let's do one last one. If this is... Oh, uh, yeah, let's do one last one. This one's from Matthew chapter 22, verses 22 through 30, 32. I'm just flipping over here in my Jesus-centered Bible to verses 32, let's see, 23 through 32. So let's see here. Oh, yes, this is his encounter with the Sadducees. So this is a fascinating encounter because these are people who actually are um, religious leaders who are materialists. <laughs> I just said that's not possible when you're a follower of Jesus, but here we have these Jewish religious leaders who are part of a sect that uh, disregarded the immaterial. So let's read from 23 to 32, and then we'll talk about it. That same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers, and the oldest one married and then died without children, so his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. And this continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. So they've concocted this, this brain teaser for Jesus to try to prove their point that his belief, um, uh, his belief in the resurrection from the dead is ridiculous, because it doesn't hold water when you think uh, in the reality, how would this really work? So in their own sort of narrow way of trying to imagine how this could possibly work, um, they cannot figure out how it could be true. And Jesus replies to them, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they'll be like the angels in heaven. But now as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is, he is, he is the God of the living, not the dead. So Jesus gives them an example out of something they already have accepted and believed, and he destroys their argument. He doesn't answer all their questions for them. He just destroys the underpinning of their logic um, to cause them to be in a state of dissonance, which Jesus does a lot. He likes dissonance. So, but he starts off his response to them by saying, you're, you're making a big mistake. First, you don't know the scriptures. Second, you don't know how powerful God is. He's also saying, in, a, in, in essence, um, you've tried to figure this out on your own, and determine how this could possibly happen, but you have not counted on the otherness of God and the, the, uh, the, the way that God is beyond our ability to understand, because he's other than us. So Jesus is saying, you, you don't yet really understand um, who God is, so you've confined yourself to trying to explain this problem on your own. So... so uh, uh, what Jesus does here is he's he's undermining these shallow sort of faithless arguments by simply quoting that Old Testament passage and uh, and essentially what he's saying there is that God is still in relationship with people who have passed on, so there must be another reality than the one we're living in. That's essentially what he's saying. He's treating our life afterlife as this 
unquestioned reality. It's not speculation, it's just real. It's happening all the time. So what difference does our answer to this question, is this all there is, what difference does it really make in our everyday life? Uh, Well, let's close off by pondering that for a second. Um, It's true in life that you can invest yourself, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, um, in non-material treasures. It's it's possible to live your life uh, tasting, experiencing, valuing, relishing non-material treasures in life. It's possible to live your whole life full of joy and fulfillment without getting the material things that, that the pursuit of happiness says we must have. For example, in a few days I'm going to go fly to Kansas City. Um, my daughter Lucy is going to pick me up from the airport. She will have driven about three hours from uh, her location in Missouri where Camp Barnabas is located. That's where she has been serving for six weeks, um, special needs adults and young people. And it's such an exhausting, demanding, ridiculously challenging uh, experience that she has. I mean, the, the story she has are just epic, but it's an exhausting um, thing that she does. Uh, 23 hours a day, she's basically on call all the time. She often gets nights of sleep that are one, two, three hours a night. It's incredible. So she has a 10-hour drive from Kansas City back to our home. So I try to get a cheap flight to Kansas City. She picks me up, and I drive all the way the rest of the way home so she can just rest and tell stories and relax. Um, And the stories I'm going to hear when I pick her up on Sunday are stories of a girl who's found um, really all, almost all of her meaning in life already at 20 years old with non-material pursuits and treasures. All of the stories she'll tell me are how she's encountered and given to and received from people who are so broken, so unable to give us what we normally ask for in a relationship, that there's no reason for them to exist. In fact, before Jesus, people who had the kinds of developmental and physical issues these people have were uh, habitually killed. If a baby had a problem like this, they were left out and exposed to the elements until they died. It wasn't until Jesus came on the scene that people who seemed to have no earthly purpose or value were eminently valued. There is no reason to interact with, care for, love, and sacrifice your life for people who don't seem to have productive capability in our culture. And yet a whole camp exists with wave after wave of teenagers coming in and out of that camp, um, offering their love and their passion and their their life's energy to those in this camp. That Those are the stories I'm going to hear from Lucy. She has pursued um, non-material treasures in her life, and they have, they're, they're congruent with the deepest joy she has in life. Um, when we give with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength um, to help others find freedom, risking rejection when we do, or when we give generously to others in need, sacrificing our own needs, all of these are little acts that say, I don't live in a materialistic 
mindset, and I don't live in just a material world. There is another world out there that I am serving right now, because in the material world, what I'm doing right now makes no sense, but it makes perfect sense if there is a kingdom of God. And when we live in that world, in that kingdom of God, Jesus says, according to the Beatitudes, that we'll experience our greatest joy. The more time we spend um, collecting treasure in the kingdom of God, the deeper our joy becomes. And it's, it's sort of an experiential marker for why the material world is not the only world. It's not all there is. The second thing is, I think we can live our lives unimpressed by death, the demonic, and uh, the lure of material pleasures. So why we continue to fear for our safety in this world, that's very human. Of course, all of us have a knee-jerk default response to violence, to unsafe situations. All of us have that. But Jesus tells us repeatedly, over and over again, um, his end game is that he wants us to be with him, and that he's going away only to prepare a, a kind of uh, individual Taj Mahal <laughs> for each of us, meaning he's using metaphoric language, but he's, go- he, he's saying, um, I'm the same one who studied the hairs on your head. I'm the same one who said that you're worth more than a whole flock of sparrows. I'm the one that is paying particular tender, detailed attention to who you are, and I'm going to go prepare a place for you that you are absolutely going to love, and it's going to facilitate us being with each other. That's what I'm going away to do. He's he's essentially saying, um, hey, don't worry so much about uh, the, the stuff that you're experiencing here, because this is going to just be a blip in the arc of your life. There is another reality that you'll be entering into, and I'm going there to make sure it is fantastic. So it doesn't negate the feelings that we have as human beings living in this world, but it does give us a reality to live in, to hope for, and to recognize in the midst of our everyday life. So the the lure of material happiness, by the way, we all know it's fake. Talk to anyone who's gotten it all, and they'll say, ah, that didn't really give me what I thought it was going to give. The only reason we still pursue it is because we are people who don't have it yet. If we had it, we would know the truth. Oh, well, that doesn't really do anything for me. Actually, that's a huge disappointment. But we, on this side of that material success, we, we find it hard to believe that that's really true. It's, it's like we are the sheep that Jesus called us. We, we see the reality right in front of us, but we blunder into it anyway because we, we just can't believe that, that what we think will give us happiness actually doesn't. But talk to anyone who's actually gained it, and they'll tell you, you can be just as miserable rich as you are poor. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that the rich are more miserable than the poor. Um, so... Um, so that, there you have it, that, that we can live our lives unimpressed by all these things, including death and the demonic, and uh, what my answer to the, the, the kids who got afraid that Friday night about the actual presence of the demonic, I was having a conversation with some of them, and I said, well, the, Jesus's perspective on all this is pretty simple to understand. Yes, it's all real, and no, he's not worried about it, 
because he has already taken away all authority, all legal and otherwise authority from this this uh, demonic spiritual world. He's not at all concerned, impressed, nothing, because he knows just as the centurion knew that Jesus had authority, Jesus knows that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and that none of these demonic presences can do anything outside of that authority. The only authority they really have is to um, use the leverage of deception against us. That's it. So our posture towards demonic uh, entities or demonic influences is to take authority and tell it to go away. (laughs) And they have no choice but to. Um, So uh, it's as easy as that, Um, and it's as non-dramatic as that. It's not a big deal. So we can live unimpressed by that, by death, and by the, the lure of material pleasures in our everyday life. And when we do, we are proclaiming to those around us that, no, this isn't all there is. There is another reality that you can live in called the kingdom of God, which will give you the meaning and purpose and joy you've been seeking. To live in the unseen kingdom is the pathway into life. Well, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can... uh, Check out my new book, The God Who Fights for, uh, the God Who Fights for You. Uh, and it's available on Amazon and elsewhere. Just uh, check it out. Please, at the very least, tell others about it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, so on and so on. Uh, tell anyone you know. Introduce them to it. Um, I, I would love for people, more people, to read this book because um, it is a uh, freedom from captivity book. Uh, maybe the the most um, targeted book I've ever written on what it f- looks like to be free from captivity. So please go check it out. I'd love your help with all of it. And remember, you can find out more about this particular episode and any links. Uh, you'll find some links to the things we talked about today um, by going to our our uh, podcast website. It's painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You're looking for uh, Season 4, Episode 25. Again, this is the Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus podcast. It's a podcast produced by Lifetree. Subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk to you again next time. 